Hello, Katie O'Connell from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. I'm in Scottsdale um, by the Arizona Crosscut Canal, roughly on the intersection of 66th Street and Oak Street. If you're looking at the street right now, you'd see a row of kind of idyllic suburban houses, ranch houses, yards, cars, flags, um, different kinds of trees. There's the, a, a trail. There's a, a, a bike and running path right behind the back fences for the last row of houses. I've seen bikers, uh, family four on scooters, people walking their dogs. And as I'm watching them, I'm wondering if these people know that this was the site of a German POW camp in World War II. And that in December of 1944, it would be the site of the largest POW escape on American soil in the war. Hey listeners, welcome back to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. I'm your host, Kayla White. In case you haven't picked up on this from previous episodes, my boss, Katie O'Connell, is a bit of a World War II history buff. So when we got a question from a listener about the camp holding German prisoners of war at Papago Park, she jumped on it. Yes, I wrote about three World War II veterans as part of my master's thesis. So when we got this question, it instantly sparked my curiosity. Due to the sensitive nature of this story, today's episode is going to go a little longer than usual. So, Katie, how did you go about reporting for this? Step one in telling the story was meeting historian Steve Hosa. Steve first heard about the German POW camp and corresponding escape in the 80s. I was born and raised here in Phoenix. I went to school here all the way through college, and it's a a part of Valley history, or Arizona history, I should say, that I have never heard of. And so I got really curious, and so I started to meet more and more people and got to hear their stories, and I started to record them. Steve interviewed a ton of people for his book, prison guards, local farmers, German POWs. He'd end up talking to more than 100 people. Many of their stories are included in his book, P.W., first-person accounts of German prisoners of war in Arizona. However, every guard or prisoner of war Steve interviewed has died, so he's really the gatekeeper for what happened here. And what exactly happened? To understand that, we have to rewind a bit. 400,000 German POWs were held in 500 camps throughout the U.S. in World War II. Although Camp Papago Park originally housed Italian POWs, it became a camp for German prisoners of war after Italy's surrender. German POWs arrived in Tempe by train the first week of January 1944. The camp at Papago encompassed uh, roughly today Thomas Road to the north, McDowell Road to the south, the Arizona Crosscut Canal, which is roughly 66th Street, and then just about two or 300 yards from, from Barnes Butte and Papago Butte. And the reaction from locals was more curiosity than anything else. Ray Redecki was a guard at Camp Papago. 
In Steve's book, he said that civilians would climb gunsight pass near the camp and spy on the Germans with binoculars. Ray said, quote, I could never understand the fascination with these, quote, supermen who were killing Americans by the thousands in Europe and on the oceans. This story really surprised me. I had an idea in my mind about how people in the valley would react to, well, the Nazi next door. I realize now that my perspective is a modern one. When we think about Nazi Germany now, we see the full picture. We know about the Holocaust. We know it killed 11 million people, including 6 million Jews. But most of the American public didn't know about the concentration camps until they were liberated. And the German POWs in Arizona didn't know about them either. It's something to keep in mind as the story unfolds. The U.S. military was, for a good reason, intent on following the Geneva Convention. That international agreement includes stipulations on how to treat prisoners of war. Under the Geneva Convention, enemy soldiers could work as laborers for their captors. Certain guidelines had to be followed, including the fact that POW laborers had to be paid. We have to remember that World War II was a, a total war. That means almost every man, woman, and child in the nation was involved in it in some way. So if you weren't involved directly with the military, you were in a war-related job. And that created a huge um, labor shortage. That labor shortage was especially felt by farmers who needed help tending to their fields. After all, the U.S. wasn't just raising food or cotton for itself. We were shipping agricultural products to other countries being decimated by the war. But in their darkest hour comes a light of hope, a light that must grow stronger and will grow stronger. It is the hope of American agriculture. Though this nation must fight to keep invaders from its own shores, its farmlands are abundant. Arizona's cotton was used to create things like military uniforms. And by the end of the war, Steve said that German POWs were picking 90 to 95 percent of it. German POWs didn't just work in agriculture. Some worked on canal maintenance. And one of the people Steve interviewed worked as the gardener at the Biltmore Hotel. My jaw dropped when I read that. A lot of the enlisted uh, men, the prisoners of war that, that did work, told me that, well, it was better than just sitting around in the camp all day doing nothing and thinking about home and what is going on. So it took their minds off the war, and it also provided them with money in the form of camp coupons, which they could exchange at the post exchange for extra um, Cokes were very popular, or toiletries, or even clothing, and things like that. In addition to pay, it provided the POWs with exposure. Civilians got used to seeing men working in laundries, wearing uniforms marked with PW for prisoner of the war on the back. Bill Patterson was a guard at the camp. In Steve's book, he said, quote, I don't know how long it was after they were in the camp that all these concerns seemed to go by the wayside, and they were soon working in the kitchens, doing KP and things like that. But it wasn't all work for the POWs. Prisoners who had been teachers or college professors taught classes. 
This included instruction in languages like English, French, Russian, and Spanish. Soldiers could learn mathematics. I couldn't find any archival material of the classes at Papago Park, but I did discover some from Fort Getty in Rhode Island. In it, an American soldier stands in front of a chalkboard, lecturing a group of students wearing clothing marked in large letters, PW. Military government, American style, is not an organized system of loot. That distinguishes it from the efforts in military government of the Axis powers. The prisoners could take college classes, they could do handicrafts, and then they would have um, uh, art shows where the, the people from the surrounding area, the civilians, could come and they could so-called buy these objects, but the prisoners couldn't have American money in case they escaped, they couldn't have it. So instead they would buy these artworks with things like um, extra toilet articles or writing paper or extra clothing or things like that. The barracks didn't have air conditioning. In the summer, soldiers would move their cots outside to sleep. There was a movie theater and POWs watched films like Meet Me in St. Louis. Clang, clang, clang with the trolley. Ding, ding, ding with the bell. POWs had pet dogs, like Helmut Mika, who had an Irish setter. They organized sports like soccer, handball, table tennis, and gymnastics, and they'd compete company versus company or barracks versus barracks. All the Germans had daily access to the Arizona Republic, the Phoenix Gazette, Time Magazine, Look, and the other magazines of the uh, period. So those that, that spoke English could read these papers on a daily basis. And if you couldn't read English, there was a weekly German newspaper with a list of classes, puzzles, and stories about the camp. I'll let Steve say the name, though. The Papago Rundschau, which means a uh, review. Here's how one of the prisoners would describe the camp decades later. Schlaraffenland. And literally in German, it's the land of milk and honey. So if it was the land of milk and honey, why did a group of prisoners try to escape? Part of it had to do with complaints about things like the quality of the food or German officers being counted during roll calls by enlisted American men instead of an American officer. And to be frank, other POWs just wanted to stir up a little trouble for the Americans. The men who escaped knew deep down they really couldn't get get anywhere uh, in order to buy anything you had to have ration coupons uh, many of them either didn't speak english or had very heavy accents and they knew that they were in the middle of, of nowhere but they just wanted to be free during the, the the christmas holidays and that is was a motivation for for a lot of them they just wanted to be free and there were a few factors working in favor of an escape. Many of the men in Compound One, like Johann Kramer, uh, Kurt Straley, uh, Fritz Guggenberger, they were um, habitual escapees, even from the camps where they were transferred from. Uh, Guggenberger had escaped previously from Papago and actually made it into Mexico before he was repatriated back. So all the men who were likely troublemakers were in one place. I asked 
Steve, if this meant they were guarded more securely? Were extra precautions taken to make sure these men didn't escape? The answer was a resounding no. In fact, the guarding at the camp was extremely lax overall. Now, to give you an idea of just how so-called lax everything is, several of the, of the prisoners, officers, told me that they were able, they were allowed for two hours at a time to walk outside of the camp without a guard, and they had their sworn word that they were going to come back. Many of the guards in the camp were classified as 4F meaning they were unfit for frontline military service. There were guard towers throughout the camp, and guards would occasionally travel the perimeter of the camp by jeep. But there weren't any foot patrols, and the guard towers were placed in a way that left a lot of blind spots. The Germans knew this. And they exploited it by pulling off a lot of uh, pranks. Like, for instance, when uh, army trucks would, would come into the um, to the compounds, they would take a swastika stencil and stencil a swastika over the white star out of sight of the, of the, the, the towers. The Germans didn't fear being recaptured since the punishment was laid out in the Geneva Convention. The reason why escape, the, the prisoners had no fear of being recaptured is because the, the most punishment they would receive would be two weeks on, bre on bread and water. There was an isolation camp called Camp Pima, which was on the other side of the camp. And they would be put there for, for two weeks um, by themselves on bread and water, and that was it. And the Americans just didn't think escaping into the desert, especially by tunnel, was a possibility. When they were building the camp, when they had to uh, dig posts for, let's say, the post for a guard tower, they had to use dynamite to blast through the, the rock. So they really didn't have a fear of them tunneling. The German POWs started planning the specifics of the escape sometime in late August or early September of 1944. The soil in the southwest is called caliche. It's a hard, almost cement-like soil. But when it rains, it becomes more pliable. The Germans realized they could dig their tunnel when the soil was wet. And when the soil dried, it was stiff enough for the tunnel to retain its shape. With the exception of a few boards at the entrance and exit, they really didn't have to reinforce the tunnel at all. And uh, they were able to, to dig most of the day. The opening for the tunnel was actually out in the, in the open. It wasn't even inside of a, of a building. And then every day they would close it up by putting boards just a few feet um, under the entrance, covering it with dirt or with sandbags and then, then putting dirt over it. Using coal shovels and screwdrivers, the German POWs slowly carved out their escape. They had a small cart on wheels that was pulled by two ropes. Using the light of a single light bulb, one prisoner would fill the cart with soil. Another man, standing at the entrance, would dump that soil. Ultimately, the tunnel would be 178 feet long. The Germans asked permission to build a Faustball court, and Faustball is sort of a, a German volleyball. And they were able to use a lot of this dirt um, on the Faustball field, and the Americans never suspected anything. 
The overall plan was for the escapees to head to Mexico, although they'd be taking different routes to get there. From Mexico, they'd jump on a neutral ship, like a commercial freighter, and make their way back to Europe. To do this, the POW started training. They stole maps. They made backpacks out of pieces of clothing and dried food to take with them. They painted the letters PW on spare clothing using toothpaste. That way the guards would think their clothing was properly marked, but it would wash off easily. They put weights in their shoes and started running or walking to strengthen their legs for the journey. Three of the escapees, uh, they were Wilhelm Gunther, Fritz Uzzolino, and Wolfgang Klaus. They didn't like the idea of having to walk all the way to um, Mexico. They were a little older, so one of them had stolen a Arizona map from a truck, and they saw that the Gila River was a blue line that went all the way to the Colorado. So they thought, we're going to build ourselves a boat, a three-man boat, and we're going to carry it down to the Gila, and we're going to sail our way to the Gila River, into the Colorado River, and then into the Gulf of California. Three men built a collapsible kayak out of canvas and wood. They even tested their boat inside of the camp before the escape to make sure it worked. So they picked a blind spot between two barracks. They dug a pool, filled the pool with water. They unfolded the boat. They had double-sided oars. All three got into it, and it didn't spring a single leak. Construction of the tunnel and planning the escape took months. But in December of 1944, the Germans were ready, and news had just reached them of one major event. The so-called Battle of the Bulge, which the Germans called the Rundstedt Offensive, it was the last major offensive in the West, and it was launched on December 16, 1944, in Belgium, in the, the, uh, the Ardennes Forest. Reserves of men and material had been hoarded for the day of counterattack. Under cloudy skies and close-hanging ground mists that defied aerial observation, the very much alive German army gathered its forces in the forest aisles to strike one strong, decisive blow at the American army. Steve said that ultimately, the Germans in the camp knew the war was coming to a close. Even still, after months of planning, on the night of Saturday, December 23, 1944, the escape began. Captain Wattenberg used the news of the Battle of the Bulge as a diversion. POWs and the adjoining Compound 2 started a demonstration, including singing and marching. One of the prisoners told me that he had found a, a weather balloon out when he was out of the camp working. They filled it with, with helium from one of the uh, stoves and they had made a, a homemade flag and they put it on a, on a rope and they let it go in the middle of the compound. And then so all of the searchlights from the tower were all fo focused on it. They were chanting, they were singing, they were marching. That went on just long enough to distract the guards. POWs in compound one started crawling through the tunnel. They'd leave in groups of two or three, rolling out every 15 to 30 minutes. The tunnel was tight, less than three feet high and about two feet wide, and it was dark. The weather that night included frigid temperatures with torrential rain. 
many of the men ended up with soaking wet clothing and ruined food rations. But they'd done it. All told, 25 German prisoners of war had escaped from Papago Park. At first, the escape went unnoticed. Camp guards skipped roll call on the morning of Christmas Eve. It wasn't until more than 24 hours later that the escape was discovered. After the discovery, guards were sent out to uncover the exit and recapture any possible POWs. Guard Larry Jorgensen noticed that a clump of plants on the bank of the canal didn't look quite right. He poked around that patch and sure enough, he discovered the exit of the tunnel. He was the, what the Germans later called the 26th man through the uh, tunnel. So he volunteered to walk, to crawl through the, the tunnel. You could crawl through on your hands and knees. So they gave him a flashlight and they tied a rope around his, his, uh, his body, his midsection, and he crawled through. Now it had been raining very heavily the night of the escape. And so the wa- there was a lot of water in the tunnel. And Larry said at one point, the water came all the way up to his chin and he, his head was at the very top of the tunnel. But he made it through. And now the Americans knew where the tunnel started. The uh, Army Corps of Engineers blew up the tunnel um, after they had, had just discovered it. One of the prisoners told me that before the tunnel was destroyed, that people who lived in the area were allowed to come and look down the tunnel if they bought a $25 war bond. I love that anecdote. For me, it kind of sums up the local reaction to the escape. People found it curious, and it really didn't phase them at all. But even when, when, you, when you look at the way that the, the newspaper covered it, even the big article showing the men, it was on actually page six. It wasn't even front page news. Uh, I interviewed a lot of the, the people who lived in Arizona or lived in Phoenix at the time. And they said, we, we didn't fear the, the Germans. We saw them on a daily basis. They were out working in the irrigation canals. They were out picking cotton. Nevertheless, 25 Germans had escaped. So where did they go? Almost immediately, uh, six of them turned themselves in uh, to, to people living in the, the, the Tempe area around uh, Tempe Butte because the rain had spoiled their uh, food. So they went and turned themselves in. The three men who built a kayak also had their plans ruined by Mother Nature. The three boatmen, as they called themselves, got down to the Gila, but unbeknownst to them, of course, we all know in Arizona, they didn't know that the Gila was just a series of puddles. And so they abandoned their their boat and uh, they were uh, captured shortly afterward by a rancher when they were caught washing their, um, their, their clothes in one of the puddles. Heinrich Palmer was the POW who referred to the camp as the land of milk and honey. Palmer and his travel mate, Reinhard Mark, made it the farthest. They traveled for 10 nights and were just 10 miles from Mexico when they were captured near Sells, Arizona. They carried um, cigarette holders with them that they had cut the ends off and they made little straws out of them so that when they found little puddles of water in rocks, they were able to sip the water out of the rocks in order to replenish their, their, their water supply. Captain Vattenberg lasted the longest. He and two of his um, crewmen, Johann Kramer and Walter Kozier, actually went and spent the entire time there in a cave in what is now called Paestua Peak. And uh, one of the first um, 
ideas that they had was to go and steal boats up at Lake Lake Pleasant and then sail down the Hacienda or the Agrafria River. But like the three boatmen, Wattenberg and his men would discover that the rivers they'd planned on sailing down weren't flowing. Instead, they stayed put in Piestawa Peak, camping out there in a cave. Kramer and, and Kozier actually walked into Phoenix several times, and they even had drinks at a bowling alley on 7th Street. Um, they would gather fruit and things on the way back because there was a lot of um, orchards in, in between Phoenix and, and Piestawa Peak. And then they would gather uh, newspapers to see, because Wattenberg spoke enough English, understood enough English, that he could tell from the newspaper articles how the escape was going, who had been recaptured already, and so forth. Eventually, Wattenberg's men were captured during one of their trips to Phoenix. Wattenberg himself tried to get out of town. He asked a local for directions to the train station, and that local tipped off authorities. The Phoenix police apprehended him at the station. A month after the escape, all of the prisoners of war were back at the camp. As they anticipated, they were put in Camp Pima on a diet of bread and water for two weeks. Well, at least everyone was but Wattenberg. So what Wattenberg did is that he told the authorities that he had injured his leg, which he didn't, um, up in the mountain, and so that he would get into the camp hospital where he would get things like better food and uh, ice cream and things like that. So Wattenberg really did not even, um, was not even technically punished uh, for what had happened. The guards who were on duty the night of the escape were reprimanded, but the only real consequence was for Colonel William Holden. Holden oversaw the camp and was, um, <clears throat> relieved of command. Life went back to normal in the camp. And then a few months later... The Red Schoolhouse at Reims, France, as peace is signed with German General Jodl acting for the remnants of the Nazi government. Jodl, for a few hours, was the chief of staff of the German army, while de Fuhrer's successor, Admiral Dönitz, was strangely missing. This is the news that electrified the world. Unconditional surrender. May 7, 1945, Victory in Europe, or VE Day. In a few months, on September 2, 1945, the world would celebrate VJ Day following the surrender of Japan. The deadliest war in the world's history was finally, finally over. Repatriation of the German POWs didn't happen immediately. Most of the prisoners did not leave until early 1946. Because in Europe, uh, the American uh, fighting men and women did not come back immediately because, remember, we had to be an occupation force in Germany. Gradually, German POWs left the camp. Some prisoners had stockpiled toothpaste and soap, knowing that they could be valuable bartering items in a decimated post-war Germany. And that's why in the pictures that you see of them boarding the, the trains in Tempe, they've got duffel bags that are just splitting practically. It's just filled with things that they knew that they could trade on the black market. And by March of 1946, Camp Papago Park was all but deserted. The German POW Steve talked to had mixed and complicated feelings about their time in the U.S. 
Some of the Germans he talked to were 16 or 17-year-old laborers in the Reich labor service when they were captured. Steve said they viewed their years of imprisonment as lost years. Others were grateful for the treatment they'd received in the U.S. Uh, when I was in Germany, one of the prisoners who I stayed with, former prisoners, um, Gerhard Kohler, uh, he took me to a, a museum near uh, Frankfurt, and it was a museum of German prisoners of war that were held by the Soviet Union. The mortality rate was almost 85%, and we went through this museum very, very um, quietly, and at the end he came and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Steve, now you realize how grateful I was being held here in Arizona. Some viewed their time in the United States as an introduction to democracy. They had never known a, a democracy in their, their whole life. They pretty much grew up under either um, the Kaiser or Hitler. So they were astonished at what a democracy really was. They loved the, the, the United States. They loved the people here. In fact, a few loved it enough to try to immigrate here. Steve talked to one. He said that he could not immigrate directly from Germany to the U.S., although he didn't give a reason why. Instead, Canada had an open immigration policy after the war since they needed laborers for their lumber industry. And becoming a Canadian citizen made it much easier for former Axis soldiers to immigrate to the U.S., which they did. Even though the camp closed in 1946, its connection to Arizonans didn't end. In 1959, Phoenix Gazette journalist Lloyd Clark reached out to Captain Wattenberg. He was working on an article about the escape, and he wanted Wattenberg's take. Thanks to Laura Keller and Sarah Guzman at the Arizona State Archives, I actually found the letter Clark sent to Wattenberg. In it, Clark says, quote, I am interested in relating as much of your story as possible in a feature article to appear during Christmas week. But Wattenberg was just the first of many POWs Clark would correspond with. And he made contacts with several of the, of the escapees and he formed a sort of an ad hoc uh, group called the Papago Trackers. Larry Jorgensen, the guard who first discovered the tunnel, was in that group. So was his wife Dorothy, who had worked as the secretary at the camp. But the Papago Trackers weren't exclusively people with ties to the camp. It was mostly just men and women who were history buffs. The Papago Trackers would host German POWs when they came back to visit. They organized reunions in the U.S. and in Germany. Tapes of the reunions housed in the state archive show noisy affairs in which people swap stories and photos with translators working to keep up. The Papago trackers wanted to preserve or remember the POW camp's role in history. But there were Arizonans who disagreed with this mission. The Papago trackers did place several um, uh, bronze plaques on the site. They were vandalized repeatedly. Um, at one of the reunions, there was a young Jewish woman that 
that staged a, a protest during it. She painted herself in white face and she wore a shroud and she stood near Wattenberg and the others to protest, you know, why are we honoring or commemorating these men who um, were part of the legacy of the Holocaust. Eventually, the plaques were removed. Captain Jürgen Wattenberg died in 1995. Larry Jorgensen died in 2009. Lloyd Clark died in 2014. Physically, there are few signs of the camp remaining. What had been the American Officers Club at the camp is now the Elks Lodge on Oak Street. There's a warehouse at the Phoenix Zoo, but Steve said you'd be hard-pressed to recognize it since it's been modified so much. The rest of the buildings that were sold off after the war have been torn down. There are four round, short, concrete cylinders from an old guard tower just to the west of the U.S. Army Reserve Center at East Oak Street and North 64th Street. Each cylinder has a square shape impressed in it from the wooden post that held up the guard tower. And it would be so easy to miss these now. I'm sure many people look at that and have no idea what it is. But what remains of the camp's legacy? For Steve, the story of the German POWs in Phoenix shouldn't center on the escape. I think it's important. I think there's um, uh, little too much emphasis being put on, on the escape. It was an interesting uh, human interest story, but to me, the real story is uh, the, the, the agricultural work that the prisoners did, not just in Arizona, but this was all over. Plus, we took a generation of of men who had been brought up under a fascist society and introduced them to a, a democracy. Then they saw what the Marshall Plan did for Germany after the war, and so these men, almost without exception, America could do no wrong. America was the greatest country in the world. While we provided German POWs with an introduction to democracy, we were simultaneously testing it. It's important to compare the reception of German POWs to the treatment of Japanese citizens during the war. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, our west coast became a potential combat zone. Living in that zone were more than 100,000 persons of Japanese ancestry, two-thirds of them American citizens, one-third aliens. We knew that some among them were potentially dangerous. Most were loyal, but no one knew what would happen among this concentrated population if Japanese forces should try to invade our shores. That audio is from a 1942 propaganda video. The voice you heard was Milton Eisenhower, the younger brother of then-General Dwight D. Eisenhower. Justifications like the one Eisenhower offered facilitated the forced imprisonment without due process of American citizens. Arizona had two Japanese internment camps, housing more than 30,000 Japanese Americans. Steve said that the internment camps were built by the Army Corps of Engineers, so they were similar to Camp Papago Park. 
but the local attitude toward its inhabitants was vastly different. But let me, I'll just tell you a story that one of the former farmers told me. Um, he lived in, in Eloy and he had a large farm and he used German POWs from Florence. And he would take this large group, 100 men with only two guards. And he said at about lunchtime, he would take the, the interpreter, who was a, a German prisoner, into Eloy or Casa Grande and buy food for the prisoners, pop and things like that. And so I asked this farmer, did anybody give you any special notice? He goes, no. The farmer then told Steve that if it had been a Japanese citizen from the Gila River internment camp, they would have been lynched. The racial propaganda during the war against the, the Japanese was severe. So the racial um, hatred against the Japanese was much stronger than it was against the Germans because they looked like most Americans. A lot of Americans were of German ancestry. Katie, thank you so much for taking us back through that chapter of history. If someone wants to learn more about it, what should they do? So I tried to buy Steve's book, but it's not in print anymore. However, you can find a copy of it in the Arizona Room at the Burton Bar Library in downtown Phoenix. You have to stay in the room to read it, but trust me, it's a fast read and it is worth it. In addition to printing out a copy of his book for me and spending Almost three hours with me. Steve was kind enough to say that anyone with questions can reach out to him directly. He's available on email at steve.hosa, H-O-Z-A, at srpmic-nsn.gov. I'll leave his email address in the story with this episode on easycentral.com in case you didn't catch that. You can also find old newsreels, like the ones I used in this episode, from the National Archives online at archive.org. And if you have any more questions for Katie about anything related to World War II, including the internment of Japanese people in Arizona, let us know. You can submit your questions online at valley101.azcentral.com. We're also on Twitter at valley101pod. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for listening.